This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 10th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. The farm bill is a mess. That's not that controversial, but it's hard to get a handle on the perverse impacts of several farm bill policies. Paul Best, an investigative journalist at the Cato Institute, has looked into the curious and distorting policies in subsidized crop insurance and the very human impacts. His report is out today. What does the farm bill give us? Sure. So the Farm Bill is a massive omnibus bill. Total costs are projected at about $1.5 trillion over the coming decade. And the spending can really be split into two main groups. The first group is SNAP funding, which is essentially food aid for low-income Americans. And that actually makes up about 80% of the Farm Bill. The other 20% is what most people think of when they think of the Farm Bill, which is the various programs that subsidize the agriculture industry. Now, these farm subsidies have existed for a long time in America. The very first farm bill actually started during the Great Depression. It was part of FDR's New Deal. And farm subsidies have kind of morphed over time. You know, at first, when farmers were recovering from the Dust Bowl, Farmers were essentially paid to take cropland out of production because they were trying to increase the price of commodities. Over time, that shifted to just direct payments for farmers, regardless of their production or how much money they made. Over time, you know, those direct payments were actually kind of shifted out of the farm bill in 2014. They were completely done away with. And now, as it currently stands, kind of the linchpin of federal farm support is actually crop insurance subsidies. So crop insurance subsidies, the main way that they work is a farmer can take out a policy to guarantee their either revenue or their yield. And taxpayers actually cover about 60% of the premiums that farmers pay. And then farmers pay the other 40% or so. So like I said, this is really the linchpin of, of support for farmers now. And more and more farmers have kind of enrolled their acres in crop insurance subsidies. Now, costs have shot up as more and more farmers have enrolled. Last year actually set a record for the total subsidy amount. It was about $12 billion that taxpayers covered for all the crop insurance premiums. So this is a costly program, you know, in a time of $1.5 trillion deficits, we should be Looking at belt tightening anywhere that we can get it in $12 billion is a large amount of money. But there's also a lot of kind of cascading unintended consequences, a lot of hidden costs associated with subsidized crop insurance that impact farmers, how they run their operations. It also impacts all of us because everyone eats and it kind of distorts the food supply. So the the argument for farm subsidies, the argument for crop insurance is that farmers who have a very bad year, they could be ruined. They could have to exit farming entirely. And so the argument goes from defenders of programs like this, we need this subsidy in order to smooth over difficult times in, in farming. And this is good for the economy. It's good for the food system, or so the argument goes. Sure. Just to kind of add some context to that conversation, because that is what is being debated in Congress right now. You know, when the first, as I mentioned, the very first farm bill back in the 1930s was part of the New Deal. 
a much larger percentage of our economy consisted of agriculture. There were a lot more farmers and they were generally a lot poorer back then. Today, as it currently stands, the median total farm household income is about $95,000 a year. It's much higher than the average U.S. household income of about $70,000. And then also, these subsidies don't benefit the smallest farmers. There's no cap on the amount of crop insurance subsidies that a farmer can receive. So certain very wealthy farmers sometimes receive well over a million dollars in crop insurance subsidies. So there's no cap on the total payments and there's no means test for the income. So other commodity support programs have means tests where if a farmer, let's say they make about $250,000 a year in household income, then they're no longer eligible for those commodity subsidies. With crop insurance subsidies, there is no means test. There is no income cap. As a result, a lot of these subsidies tend to disproportionately benefit the wealthiest farmers. Most studies find that the largest 10% of farms receive well over half of all crop insurance subsidies. And so what this does is it is it disadvantages the smaller and beginning farmers who are trying to break into the industry, and it benefits the wealthiest among them. So really, it's essentially welfare for the wealthiest farmers to the disadvantage of the smaller and beginning farmers who are trying to either establish themselves in the industry or, or break in altogether. Now, you tell a story in your piece. It's told through the lens of one farmer, but I think it illustrates a little bit how the incentives work here. Like, what are farmers incentivized to do because these crop insurance subsidies are so substantial? So. Crop insurance subsidies actually change the whole risk calculus when farmers are approaching how they run their operations. Crop, crop insurance plans are readily available only for a few select crops. And as a result, about 80% of all premium subsidies go to just four staple crops. That's corn, cotton, wheat, and soybeans. And this means that essentially the government is discouraging farmers from growing more diverse crops, more specialty crops like fruits and vegetables. Just as an example, corn is the most, most planted crop in America. It's been that way for a few decades now. But since the mid-2000s, there's, it's gone up from about 70 million acres of planted corn to nearly 100 million acres of planted corn last year. You see the same story with these other main staple crops. And what this means is for our food supply, it has a massive impact because we have a less diverse, some would say less nutritious food supply. It also impacts operations and it has a lot of environmental consequences. Monoculture cropping, I talk to a lot of farmers. It's very clear that you know planting the same crop, you know, whether it be corn or wheat or soybeans year after year and having no diversity in your planning decisions, it's not good for the environment. Uh, we don't have time to necessarily get into the science of it right now, but it takes a lot of those kind of nutrients and microorganisms out of the soil, which is not good. So there's a lot of environmental consequences, and then it also impacts our food supply. So 
let's take Gabe Brown, for example. He's one of the farmers that I talked to for my story as I was trying to essentially investigate how these policies impact farmers' decisions. He's been farming for about three decades. He bought 600 acres outside Bismarck, North Dakota in the early 1990s. And at first, he enrolled in every government program that was available to him. He wanted to take advantage of them. He saw all his neighbors doing it. But over time, he had a lot of crop failures, you know, due to capricious weather, due to a lot of his farming practices, frankly. And he started to kind of rethink what he was doing. And he realized that being enrolled in subsidized crop insurance plans, where he could only plant a few staple crops, uh, it really handcuffed him. It handcuffed his decision making, you know, trying to only rely on corn or wheat or soybeans for all of his profit, it, it didn't work out well for him. And over time, as he wanted to start kind of diversifying the different enterprises on his farm, he wanted to expand the ground that he had. He realized that in order to have the freedom to make those decisions, he kind of had to separate himself from the farm programs. And so he stopped enrolling in crop insurance. He stopped enrolling in various other farm programs that kind of made decisions for him, essentially. And, you know, just as an example of one thing that he's able to do now, like I said, he lives in North Dakota where he farms. North Dakota just had three of the driest years on record over the last three years. Now, most people in North Dakota, a lot of them plant corn. It's a very high water use crop. And he does plant corn sometimes, but because he knew that it was, there was going to be a drought, that it was going to be not a lot of rain, he actually shifted to barley and peas and other low water use crops to kind of augment his planning decisions to adjust to innovate, essentially. He's only able to do that because he's not enrolled in a lot of the farm programs that would otherwise make those planting decisions for him. So his neighbors all planted corn like they normally do. Their crops fell because there was a drought, but they collected their crop insurance payments. He, on the other hand, had diversified what crops he was planting because he wasn't handcuffed to any government programs. He planted those other low water use crops. And because of the diversity uh, that he had built into his farm, he was able to create a profit and actually grow crops that worked for the changing weather conditions. So that one story kind of illustrates how you know not being tied to certain government programs that make decisions for the farmers allow them to innovate and adapt to changing conditions, whether that be weather or just market conditions. So whatever the argument that defenders of the status quo would make on behalf of crop insurance, it seems at least worrisome that these subsidies might very well make our food system more brittle and less able to weather some difficulties that you know farmers have to deal with all the time. Absolutely. Crop insurance is a risk management tool. And because it's subsidized, it totally changes kind of the risk calculus that farmers make whenever they're deciding what they're going to plant for a given year, et cetera. 
as I just described with Gabe Brown's example, when he separated himself from all these government programs and had the freedom to adapt and innovate, he started planting a lot more cover crops that restored a lot of the nutrients to his soil. He diversified what crops he was actually growing. So he steered away from the monoculture cropping that exists in, on a lot of farms throughout America. He did a lot of other things. He, he restructured his livestock's grazing habits. And he started kind of approaching his farm in a holistic way to manage the various risks that can hit a farm in a given year. So that's the approach that he took. He diversified his farm and he's able to essentially manage risk, manage weather risk, manage market downturns because he's not handcuffed to any programs and he makes decisions that he sees are best for his farm. Paul Best is an investigative journalist at the Cato Institute. His new report on subsidized crop insurance is out today. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.